Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maureen Madden. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Anoop Mayamparath, PhD, and we'll be talking about development and external validation of a machine learning model for prediction of potential transfer to the pediatric ICU, published in Pediatric Critical Care Medicine this month, July 2022. To access the full article, visit pccmjournal.org. Dr. Mayam Paruth is an assistant professor of biostatistics and medical informatics at the University of Wisconsin-Madison in Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome, Dr. Mayam Paruth. Before we start, do you have any disclosures to report? No, I do not have any disclosures to report. Very good. So it's really my pleasure to have the opportunity to speak with you today. If you would not mind starting out to give a little bit of background about yourself and how you became interested in machine learning. Yeah, sure. So my PhD was in informatics and I largely concentrated on bioinformatics. So I was developing algorithms for analyzing mass spectrometry data for proteomics applications. But when I joined University of Chicago, I started collaborating with Matt Chopek, who's the senior author on this paper. And together we started working on a few clinical informatics projects. And so from bioinformatics, I sort of made the transition to clinical informatics, having realized the potential of using electronic health, health record data and statistics to improve patient health. And during our time together, we started using more stats, going for more stats to prediction modeling and developing clinical prediction models. Dr. Chopek has a history of developing clinical prediction tools on the adult side. And we started working together. And I, because I was in pediatrics, I started exploring opportunities for machine learning in pediatrics and sort of landed upon my field in that sense. So I'm really appreciative that you have taken to heart and taken the pediatric population to work on this because that's the background that I come from. And you know, many things start in the adult population before it then filters down to pediatrics. And sometimes it's not always necessarily extrapolated in the correct way. So I'm really excited to see this article in print. But before we go into discussing the article a little bit, would you mind in more plain language, trying to initiate what the conversation about machine learning and predictive models are? Yeah, sure. So machine learning largely is a field where you instill the ability of a computer to sort of learn from data. And you do this without giving explicit instructions on how to do this learning. So the background of machine learning is, on the back end of machine learning are several algorithms that intersect statistics and computer science. And what these algorithms do is they sort of look for patterns in within the data. And you sort of point the algorithm towards an outcome that you're trying to predict. And the algorithm uses patterns of the data to solve how do you best predict that outcome. And there's a little bit of engineering to it as well. Once you develop the model, you sort of have to engineer the model so that it can operate without bias, without what we call as overfitting. And so you can apply it to a variety of patients and a variety of predictions or variety of uh, populations. What's different about clinical predictions and clinical machine learning is that we have 
not only we have the ability to actually impact patients directly, but the whole idea of a machine learning sort of views are different because the data that we use has to be curated very carefully. Things like model accuracy, which is so uh, so much more popular in computer science machine learning, are of relative of lesser importance to us. What we look for is things like positive predictive value, negative predictive value. And because the predictions that have come out from the model are used to impact clinical care. And so it is only as useful if it actually people use it, right? The second thing that's different is we have to have the ability to trust a clinical prediction model for the same reason that people need to use it to actually see the benefit to the patient. And thirdly, we have to have the ability to generalize to external settings, patients outside of your cohort, and we have to sort of do a deep analysis on different, especially in pediatrics, we have to sort of do an analysis by age group, or stratified by patient type, and so on. Okay. So I know in the article that you're the lead author on, you talked about PCART, which is a gradient-based machine model. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the very motivation for this work is basically we want to develop a new early warning score that will tell clinicians and care personnel in the hospital which kid is at risk for experiencing a deterioration event in the future. And why we set down this path was when we looked at early warning scores on the pediatric world, we sort of saw how there were there was a dominant one called the pediatric early warning score and called the pews. And there's different flavors of it. There's, you know, there's the bedside pews, which is sort of a simpler seven item scoring scale. And there's uh, Monaghan's pews and Brighton pews, all of which are sort of variations of the same sort of concept. We saw that these are limited because a couple of reasons. One is they're, since they're item based scoring schemes, so they had these cutoffs based on age groups, right? So if you're a four-year-old and your heart rate was this much, then you are given a score of two if it is between a certain bond, you know, upper bond, lower bond of heart rate. You total all those scores up across systems, like heart rate, respiratory rate, oxygen saturation, and so on, and then you get a, assigned a particular score. Higher score means you're more likely to deteriorate. So there were two problems with that. Is one is these cutoffs that are developed are usually developed from a limited population and probably not generalizable to a large extent. And secondly, these scoring schemes also had subjective components in them, such as the characteristic of the patient, defining them as irritable versus consolable. And you would agree with your background that what is identified as irritable by one nurse could easily be recorded as consolable by another nurse, depending on their experience. So So now you have these subjective variation in the scoring scheme itself that across even within the hospital different people might score things differently and across hospitals you can see variations in scoring as well so what we wanted to see was does if you remove the subjective part just look at raw vital signs not put any subjective cutoffs not put any subjective scoring elements can we do better than use and one of our early publications a couple of years ago basically showed that this was possible so then the question was, all right, we just use vital signs. Now, can we improve the model further? So two venues that we decided to do was we wanted to incorporate labs. And then we wanted to go from a statistical model to a machine learning model. So we went from a logistic regression to a gradient boost to machines. And finally, we wanted to validate it externally in another hospital so that we could understand how it performs in a data set that it hasn't seen before. I totally can appreciate the subjective nature of a lot of the existing 
early warning scoring tools, and it doesn't necessarily take into account, you know, one classic example is if the child's febrile, you actually, and based on age, you have an anticipate that there's going to be an impact on their heart rate as well as their respiratory rate, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it puts them into a deterioration of their clinical status, but yet it puts you in a scenario where people are heightened to them and brings them to further attention or further evaluation. So when you talk about bringing all of the additional lab values in, how does it account for the fact if those items that are part of the model actually haven't been documented for an individual patient? Or does it, I know when I read the article, it said the greatest items that seem to have risk of determination was FiO2 heart rate and respiratory rate. So how does that account for potentially not having all of the data points that you're using in the model? Right. So that's essentially what we in the machine learning world call as the missing value problem, right? So what do you do when you have missing values in your observations? And traditionally in clinical prediction modeling, one way of doing it is to sort of carry forward the last recorded value. In other words, if your heart rate was measured at 8 a.m., the temperature was measured at 12 p.m. and you don't have a heart rate at 12 p.m., you sort of carry forward that heart rate at 8 a.m. to the current time point. So you have the ability to make a prediction as well as uh, train the model. And for observations that you can't carry forward, for example, if lactate was not taken until the you know 24 hours after a patient is admitted, what we do is those, those beginning few hours will not have any lactate values because there's nothing to carry forward. So what we do is we impute it using the median by location. So all patients in a similar ward will basically get the same median imputed value for observations that they can't be carried forward. So when I was reading the article as well, I was thinking about this, you know, each institution has different arrangements in terms of what's acceptable for an ICU environment, what's acceptable for a ward environment. So what was catching my attention, because you used FiO2 as a parameter as part of this algorithm, but I was thinking about the various oxygen delivery devices that we can use. And depending upon the specific institution, they may choose to use something like high flow only in the ICU setting, or they may use it on the ward setting. So how do you account for the technology that may be in place already? Or is it really just looking at those data points in isolation? Yeah, we consider the latter case. We basically, we look at the observations of recorded fraction of inspired oxygen. And we, the other devices that you mentioned, basically being high flow nasal cannula are, we could consider them as interventions of their own, right? So we could think about it as patient is already showing signs of deterioration. So they get put on high flow uh, before, you know, they crash to the point where they need a mechanical ventilation, for example. So we could definitely use those devices as proxies for deterioration, but we actually want to capture that deterioration ahead in time. So at the point at which the high flow is ordered, it's probably it's too late, right? In, in a certain sense, the model is not really useful in that sense of identifying children at risk for future deterioration. So what we want to do is look at the FiO2 readings six hours before and try and predict whether or not they, they go worse. So, uh, so that was our thinking in terms of looking at raw observations rather than interventions in our model. So also then it, it discussed the concept that it's reducing the number of alerts in comparison right now to some of the other scorings that were a little bit more subjective in nature. So you're decreasing alarm fatigue, you're decreasing false alarms, and you're really honing in on the population that truly has the potential to be deteriorating, correct? I understood that properly? 
Yes, that is correct. I think that's one of the most important things in clinical prediction models is if you have a model that fires all the time, then people are not going to use it. And so your model becomes essentially useless. On the other hand, if you fire too less, then people are not going to trust it, right? Or people are not going to miss patients that are more at risk for deterioration. So there's this balance point that we have to look at where you try to maximize sort of the true positive rate or sensitivity of the model while trying to minimize the number of alerts. So we have this analysis where we did, where we looked at the number of patients needed to alert, which is basically how many patients do you need to be alerted on to get one positive outcome, one true label versus sensitivity. And we saw that at levels of sensitivity that are clinically relevant, we found that the, that PCART had a lower number needed to alert than the bedside views. Essentially saying that at the same true positive rate, we will fire less. So you won't miss any patients and you will have fewer alarms during a particular shift. Yeah, so that's amazing because that's what people really want and to be able to focus their resources in the best possible manner. So the reduction in false alarms and alarm fatigue, et cetera, is really an important part of this. So it's very exciting in that regard. So I have another big concept question for you, though, and this is more due to my lack of knowledge and understanding of this. How is this to be applied in most environment? What does it take to have this algorithm in place? How universal can this be employed? Tell me more about it. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. And essentially, what we because we're using data from the electronic health record, we essentially need an EHR infrastructure in the hospital to implement our model. And our model has been implemented at University of Chicago over the last year or so since March 2021, to be precise, where it's actually being used in real-time assessment of risk. So nurses on the floor have a screen that they can see where they can look at the PCOT score. The scores get divided into 0 to 100, and there's uh, cutoffs that we have set based on you know, yellow, green, yellow, and gray, green, yellow, and red. Gray basically meaning that you know the patient is okay. Yellow basically saying that the patient is showing signs of early derangement and red basically showing that patients are showing signs of severe derangement. So every time a patient crosses each threshold, there's a list of steps that the nurses has to go through. There's a pathway that they have to go through, click on steps and say that they did this and that we call this compliance and we actually measure compliance to those pathways at points at which the transition between the patient states happen. So on the back end, we use Epic in our in at University of Chicago, and so our model it can interface directly with Epic pretty easily. Uh, having said that, the other major EHR is Sonar, and I believe that our model is pretty transportable to uh, Sonar as well. The model exists in an isolation through a, basically a binary object, and if you have the capability to interface with that then you're set. So assuming you have electronic health record system that can talk to a very simple representation of the model, then you will be able to get predictions from it. Okay. So it's still reliant then upon populating the data or extracting the data that's been inputted. So you still have somewhat of a human component to it and possibly a lag associated with it, if I'm understanding it correctly? Yes, it is definitely sort of augmented intelligence, right? Where you well, the first thing that you're asked to do is verify the recording. So every time a nurse takes vitals is when PCOT gives you a score. Every time there's a new lab measurement is when PCOT gives you a score. 
And so the first step that they have to do is verify those recordings that those observations are correct. And then when they verify, and then there's a score that's generated automatically, but that's instantaneous. That's the matter of milliseconds getting that particular probability. But it is dependent on data coming in through routine checks of vitals, which I believe in a standard hospital is about once every four hours or so. So, And labs would come in intermittently between those two times. So on average, you should probably get two or three readings of PCOT score within four hours. So if all of these data points are inputted and everything and the change is being detected, is there a hard stop associated with it? So if you get yellow or you get red because it's detecting that there's a clinical change in the patient for a deterioration, can they ignore it? Do they have to acknowledge it? What happens? To be compliant with the system, basically, they have to go through and click on a pathway that asks them to consider several options, depending on whether they went from grade to yellow or from yellow to red. So going from yellow to red is probably easier to explain. So that's that transition is the most severe, at which point it sort of gets escalated to the PQ team or the PQ response team in a particular hospital. So the change from gray to yellow is accompanied by options where they can call the physician in charge for the patient. They can redo the vitals in another two hours so they can sort of say that it, this deteriorate this is expected and what we're going to do is check again more frequently as opposed to a four-hour checkup or they have the ability to order labs or they can screen for conditions like sepsis for the patient where they ask them to think about why is this happening and they have to click on what their choice is and they have to enter free text that says to explain what they think is happening so all the data is being collected on the back end and that's relevant data to us because it tells us how the care person is interacting with the model and how we can make it better. So, I mean, since I work in the critical care unit, it's intriguing to me, first of all, to try and have the opportunity to intervene and prevent individuals from needing a transfer to the ICU. But I want to take it a step further. What else do you see this machine learning being used for in critical care? What other aspects may it be used on? Can it be translated into the ICU and still have a predictive component for deterioration? It's one of the things I've struggled with as I've been working within our system to try and create a tool for sepsis. But because our population in the ICU, there are so many alarms and so many changes in their hemodynamics that may or may not really be resulting in deterioration, goes back to that alarm fatigue. So if you could tell me your big dream about how we can expand this use, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, absolutely. So what else could it be used for? So right now, PCOT is only used for ward patients. So you have to be an admitted patient under the age of 18 in a ward, and it predicts the risk of going from a ward to ICU within the next 12 hours. We have tested on other outcomes where we tested it on what is the risk of going to the ICU and then being mechanically ventilated or put on vasopressors or dying within 12 hours of ICU admission. And the performance is better than Pew's, which is pretty high. But our primary outcome is still, does this patient run the risk of going to the ICU from the ward within the next 12 hours? So we're not really preventing ICU transfer. We're sort of saying there's an early risk of ICU transfer. And so what they could do is maybe transfer that happens earlier as opposed to, you know, depending on ICU conditions, of course. Or potentially Um, have interventions that are appropriate that changes the patient's clinical status and then doesn't require the transfer. That's how I was visualizing it as well. 
card card yeah it's certainly possible that is an option too the other question that you had was about i how do you translate this to icu patients and i think for uh, for icu patients the outcome becomes a little bit more delicate right because no longer are we predicting what to icu transfer so you have to sort of think about what defines deterioration in the icu right uh, and then you have to also think about what elements of data you have in the icu which is so different from the ward you have more frequent checkups, right? Vitals, you have waveform data that you can use from the monitor. And so the machine learning there tends to be a sort of separate from a ward population, which is, you know, the IC population is more homogeneous in in a certain sense. They have more data, they have a lot more interventions and things happening to them. So our current research is we've sort of started thinking about expanding PCART into the ICU, but we are still at the stage by trying to define what the outcome that we're trying to predict is, what data that we need to use, how often do we need to fire this score, and so on and so forth. Well, I really need you to come up with that. So I'm looking (laughs) forward to additional work on this. And do you have any final words? Yeah, no, thank you so much for the opportunity. I'd love to discuss this more being a a statistician, informatics, and a machine learning expert, my every time I talk to somebody on the medical side, my knowledge only gets improved. So thank you so much for chatting with me about this. Well, thank you. You've certainly expanded my knowledge and hopefully the audiences. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast. For the Society of Critical Care Medicine podcast, I'm Dr. Maureen Madden. Maureen A. Madden, DNP, RN, CPNC, AC, CCRN, FCCM is a professor of pediatrics at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School and a pediatric critical care nurse practitioner in the Pediatric Intensive Care Unit at Bristol-Myers Squibb Children's Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Contact a customer service representative at 847-827-6888 or visit sccm.org slash membership for more information. The SCCM podcast is the copyrighted material of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, and all rights are reserved. Find more episodes at sccm.org slash podcast. This podcast is for educational purposes only. The material presented is intended to represent an approach, view, statement, or opinion of the presenter that may be helpful to others. The views and opinions expressed herein are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of SCCM. SCCM does not recommend or endorse any specific test, physician, product, procedure, opinion, or other information that may be mentioned.